this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 245, and we're recording on Thursday, January 25th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. I'm on a di- I'm on a different mic I'm on a different mic so I feel like my whole personality my old DJ personality has to change. You move to a different desk. You put on a new hat. Everything's different. Uh, yeah, after 245 episodes, you got to mix it up a little. You know, a little bit. Else. Yeah, I was gonna say. You know, we could put on a cowboy hat. I could talk about Garth Brooks some more. But I that's know what that the people want. That's what I heard cr- is really the feedback we got is everyone <laughs> wanted to hear more about Garth Brooks, especially the people in the I'm, UK. I'm just Shout saying it is my pleasure that we have now introduced a few of our UK listeners to the magic of Garth Brooks. Spilled over into a text conversation with you, me, and Michelle about Alan Jackson and Garth Brooks. Like, it really took over <laughs> our lives. It really did. I appreciate Michelle's straightforward feedback about the podcast, but mostly when it's about how I'm awesome, not how we're talking about Garth Brooks too much. Uh, it's a double-edged sword, Rebecca. You haven't seen the other side of that blade that often. Let me tell you, <laughs> it's, she keeps both sharp. Let's put it that way. <laughs> She's an awesome lady, I have no doubt. Yeah. Um before we get into the actual non-Garth Brooks-related news, would you like to hear about our let's, first let's, sponsor yeah. this it's week? It's funny. It's the, the sponsor is Before I Let Go. So before we let go, <laughs> of, <laughs> let's do it. sounds so, like it could be a Garth Brooks song, right? Like before I Let Go could be a book, Garth Brooks song. Right? Oh, yes. You know he has like the draft of this oh, of sitting somewhere. All right. Tell me about this uh, So this is Before I Let Go. It's by Marika Niekamp. Um, she is the number one New York Times bestselling author of This Is Where It Ends, which you would have heard about on this show and other shows at Book Riot over the last couple of years. This is about best friends Corey and Kira. They were inseparable in their snow-covered town of Lost Creek, Alaska. Then Corey moves away, and she makes Kira promise to stay strong during the long, dark winter and wait for her return. But just days before Corey is to return home to visit, Kira dies. Corey's devastated and she's confused. The entire lost community speaks in hushed tones about the town's lost daughter. But Corey knows that something is wrong. Lost is keeping secrets, chilling secrets. But piecing together the truth about what happened may prove as difficult as lighting the sky in an Alaskan winter. So again, this is by Marika Niekamp. She is the number one New York Times bestselling author of This Is Where It Ends, which spent more than 60 weeks on the bestseller list. Before I Let Go addresses important and timely issues that concern teens today, like neurodiversity, sexuality, and suicide, all of which are sure to generate conversation. And from the very first pages of the book, the setting of Lost Alaska is a power portrayed character within the story. And I love that when a writer can make the place a character in the story as well. Gives the reader a very deep, rich, really unique backdrop for the narrative. The author is a member and advocate of She's a member of We Need Diverse Books, and she's an advocate of books that explore and celebrate diversity. Uh, so lots of awesome stuff going on here. Again, that's Before I Let Go by Marika Niekamp. 
Well, I mean, unfortunately, our um, lead story this week is the passing of the great, the giant, the incomparable uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, who passed away this week uh, at the age of 88. Um, Apparently, she had been in ill health for the last several months. She's a Portland resident. um, Mm. So I hear about her, and I'd heard recently that she was, I think she had canceled an appearance or something recently related to poor health. Um. But she passed away this week, and, you know, there's not too many of these that we're going to have in our lifetime that die that you can say they're up there um, on the Mount Rushmore of their field um, of literature writ large. Um, a Tol- you know, you know, we weren't alive when Tolkien was, but this is kind of our Tolkien person, mm-hmm. um, Ursula was. An outpouring of appreciation, an outpouring of, of loss, um, an outpouring of... Uh, you know, re-remembering. Sometimes, you know, this happens, especially when writers have been around a long time and have been very prolific. I guess it happens in any field. You you take them for granted, or you you, you kind of you're so close to the scale of their work that's even hard to see. Oh yeah, they're building a mountain, and I'm just like standing next to this mm-hmm. rock. You know, like if I look up right. and look around, that the edifice of what they've done, um, the scale of it becomes easier and more overwhelming to appreciate. Um, I'm not even sure what to say about uh, about her. There's, I'm glad we get a chance to talk to her about uh, about her because of her. I'm sad about the reason she was 88. You know, you want them to live as long. Um, she had a good long, very prolific. It's hard to think in our life. You know, we've lived through uh, lived through. I mean, in in their podcast world, you know, we had Harper Lee mm-hmm. die. Mm-hmm. Right. We haven't had one like this as an American. I don't think um, that I can remember. Yeah, I don't think so. Someone who had so much work that was really so paradigm shifting in Mm -hmm. many ways. And on the grand scale of being a woman in science fiction and fantasy, before there were a lot of women in science fiction and fantasy, there's been a letter that I've seen circulating around the internet that she wrote some years ago uh, to, I believe it was an editor who invited her to participate in an anthology uh, in which her work would be criticized within the anthology by like some writer who apparently was known to have sexist tendencies. Uh, and she says, like, I don't know why I would submit myself to this, you know, in, in this way, but also why would I submit my work to an anthology that's also not going to c- include any other women? Um, she was fighting that feminist fight for um, literature writ large, but also for science fiction in particular for a very, very long time, a great advocate of books and reading and of reading culture. Um, she gave that talk a few years ago. Was it at the National Book Awards? Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, I remember. Um, really wonderful and moving there. I believe the video is available online um, discussion of the power of books and reading in our lives and the responsibility that booksellers and the publishing uh, professionals have today. It's, I really don't think there's somebody on this scale. My feeds have just been filled with people saying, you know, I first read her when I was nine and that book changed everything. Um, Our own Jen Northington has one of those stories about reading wizard of Earthsea when she was very young and how that like led to her discovery of her, herself as a science fiction and fantasy reader. And she's one of thousands, probably millions of people who have had that experience with Ursula K. Le Guin, just a a giant. And um, I think because of the genre that she wrote in, also one who did not get as much really vocal, full-throated attention and praise as she deserved for the kind of work that she had done. Like if Toni Morrison were as prolific as Ursula K. Le Guin 
was. And um, they were writing in the same genre. Ursula K. Le Guin was also in literary fiction, you know, the kinds of books that win those big prestigious awards. Mm-hmm. I think more people would know her name. Certainly more people should know her name. Um, and I'm I also am glad we have a reason to talk about her, but sad. Yeah, let's let's dwell on her for a minute longer, or two, or five, or ten. I don't care. Our show, we can do what we want. If anyone deserves it. I mean, it's interesting for Mm -hmm. our show and our site. She is, I think, a wonderful... Like, she's in the white-hot center of what we care about on this site. And Mm -hmm. not just just because of what she writes in, but she um, socially and politically aware, active. Um, She writes in a genre that borders on what we might call literary fiction in terms of language mm-hmm. and complexity. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to say supersedes genre because I think people sometimes say that to say, well, she's, she, she's so good. She's better than her genre. I don't think it's a question of that. I think it's, she, she operated in her genre at the very highest level that can be done in any genre or any non-genre, right? Like she just was awesome. And, you know, the opening of The Lathe of Heaven, the first paragraph is beautiful and has a very modernist kind of feel to it. Um, 1969, um, you know, the, the oh, what's the, now I'm blanking on the name of the novel that came out where the, it's on some other planet where the, the residents are, don't have a gender. Like uh, in 1969, mm-hmm. like that's, that's, mm-hmm. that still feels progressive today. That still feels cutting edge today. Um, also interesting, her parents were anthropologists. Um, her, I can't remember if it was her mother or father, but one of them studied indigenous cultures of the U.S. So she had at her disposal, but also in her house, the language and attitude to think about culture and society and other cultures and identities responsibly and thoughtfully, um, which I think was present in all of the work that I've read of her, that she's very sensitive to being different, but not being worse or better even necessarily. Just like what happens if you change the levers of how a society uh, is put together. Um, also, Ursula didn't care about making you feel good about talking to her, I think is one way of putting yeah. it. She spoke the truth of what she believed, whether or not mm-hmm. it was going to be comfortable for other people to hear, without being intentionally sort of performatively cantankerous, I think. Does that sound right? I mean, is that a jive with your understanding of her? Yes. Yeah. I think it's certainly not performatively cantankerous. She just was way ahead of the curve of outspoken women, not Mm -hmm. caring if they were liked. Um, and she voiced her opinions in particularly situations and circumstances as a woman writer of sci-fi fantasy that were that difficult, that could not have been easy, but that she rolled forward. And there's a, she has a very recent collection of essays recent as in like the last couple of weeks called no time to spare. Um, she wasn't wrong. (laughs) wasn't wrong about the title. Yeah. Right. She, Amanda was sending me photos Mm. of the pages she was reading, like look at Ursula K. Le Guin, like she's still bringing it at 88. So, fully engaged um, in the world of ideas and the world of books and reading and just in the world. Um, And I think she was never unaware of the connection that books and reading have to how we engage with the world in a larger sense. She knew the importance of what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And she knew the potential for change, um, for thinking, for ideas that was in science Mm -hmm. fiction and fantasy. Um, I don't know. I've never, I mean, I I don't know that she would argue, I think she probably would, if whether science fiction or fantasy is especially good at thinking politically, but she certainly used what capability was Mm -hmm. there to think politically and 
and socially. I mean, you know, it's an interesting case in which there's a there's a version of our popular culture world in which she's much more well known because Wizard of Earthsea is the Hunger Games, right, or something like right. that, where it gets made into a giant film franchise, and probably someday it will be. I mean, I think you and I have talked about an earlier show in our ongoing um, chronicling of the adaptation Gold Rush that's currently going on, the Le Guin, mm-hmm. an Untapped, yeah. And who knows about what she wanted? Maybe I would not be surprised at all if she wanted complete creative control over whatever someone did. Maybe she didn't want it at all. Like, I, I've never heard anything about it. If you, if anyone out there has seen her comment on film or TV adaptations of her work, I, I'd certainly love to see it. But you know, a well-made Wizard of Earthsea series would have rocketed her up in the mm-hmm. public consciousness, curating whatever. You know, it, it, it's certainly possible there's a world in which that would have happened in her life. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess it could still happen. We don't yeah, know, as we you were know. saying, if she had... It's hard to fathom that in this golden age of adaptations, she hadn't been approached about oh, it. Oh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. It's, have, it's really hard to imagine that it hadn't occurred to anybody in Hollywood that this would be mm-hmm. a smart idea to adapt her work. Um, so I, I hope that we'll get to see some of that on a big screen or a small screen or maybe all of the above mm-hmm. at some point, um, or at least perhaps we'll find out why we haven't seen it yet, but it does seem uh, that so ripe for that and what mm-hmm. a huge audience it could break her out for. Like this could be, uh, you know, or that could be sort of new life um, for her work to whole new generations of readers. But that's also been a remarkable thing to hear about is people being like, you know, my parents read me yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin because they had read Ursula K. Le Guin, yeah. um, which uh, I didn't come to her until much later in life. Neither that's did the I. kind Neither of story that I. I have about, about Tolkien with my mm-hmm. dad having read Tolkien and then having read it to me. But just a really remarkable career, certainly the literary world is less rich for having lost her. And I'm sure there are stories that she's told and that have been out there about her difficulty getting published, but I always got this sense of her, and maybe this was projection or wish fulfillment, like, I always feel like she did it the way she wanted to do it, you know, mm-hmm. like a, she carved out a space for herself, and it, that carving may have required a chisel and hammer, <laughs> I'm sure it did, right. um, in the early days or even ongoing basis, but I never got a sense of compromise from her, um, which I can't, again, there's reasons to compromise. I, I'm not judging anyone else, but I'm, I will say about her that it, it feels like she created what she wanted to create and she didn't do, I don't know. She didn't have to. She didn't have to write a press release defending Johnny Depp's casting and something. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like that's an extreme right. example. Mm-hmm. But she never. You never have to do something. I never have heard. Mm-hmm. Do she something. really stuck to her guns, at least yeah. publicly. We know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, fare thee well, Ursula K. Le Guin. If you haven't read any Ursula K. Le Guin, I, I recommend it. I'm going to drop a link in the show notes. Um, Jen wrote up our quick letting people know on the site. You know, people get a lot of information from us, and she included a link to something that appeared on our site a while ago about uh, Ursula, Quay, Ursula K. Le Guin book for every reader, which I think is a really great starting point um, if you want to get into it. I, Left Hand of Darkness, Lays of Heaven, Wizard of Ursi, I think those are probably the three best known. Um, you could start there if you want to go do it. Wizard of Ursi, I think it's, I'm not sure, I think it's pitched at a middle grade level. I was actually wondering, my son Ames is in first grade and he's read, starting to read chapter books. I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's almost ready. 
Oh, he might almost be. Ray. Yeah, I think he probably is. I read Wizard of Earthsea was actually my very first Le Guin mm. a few years ago after Jen had recommended her to me just endlessly. And you were just like, shut up, Jen. And okay, fine. I'll read it. <laughs> fine, I'll do it. And then I was like, oh, I get it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I get it now. I bet Ames is probably ready for it. It would be a good read aloud. Yeah. yeah. Good adventure story. Yeah. So anyway, um, Ursula Clay Le Guin. I-, I don't want this to be an afterthought. And it's not really. It's just we were reminded that during our hiatus, um, we had another passing that we would have mentioned if we had had a show. Mm-hmm. And this jarred our memory. Um, Ursula's passing. Sue Grafton dying um, a few weeks ago. Apparently, she had also been sick. Um, and I, you and I don't have a, a relationship with her work. I think we both know that she was a titanic force oh, in publishing, yeah. sold a, a lot of books. Um, also someone who did it the way she wanted to, I think there's a parallel and I didn't know this until I was reading some of the obits or stuff. She never wanted her stuff to be adapted. There's, there's no, there is oh. no, you know, why is for yesterday. I don't even remember what the, the, she, there is no, and she didn't want it and she left the money on the table. She probably left book sales on the table, but she's like, no, I want control. These are my stories. Not going to do it, mm-hmm. which I thought was fascinating. Um, and her big project was she wrote a series of mysteries going through the alphabet, and each title was, and I don't have them in front of me, um, but A is for alias, I think, or, some, or alibi might have been the first one. I'm not sure. But then yeah, goes, it's alibi. Is that right, alibi? Mm-hmm. Um, all the way through Y, and uh, her daughter wrote the Facebook announcement on her fan page, and I thought it was a really mm-hmm. lovely little ending. She said, as far as we're concerned, the uh, alphabet ends in Y. They're not going to hire Aww. David Lagerkrantz to come do Z is for <laughs> Xyloph- or Z is for zebras or whatever. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it's yeah. for the best because Z is a tough one to title. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I I thought it was fascinating. A fascinating woman. I hadn't to to be perfectly candid given much thought to um, until reading about mm-hmm. her and found her much more interesting than I would have thought and that was unfair of me and dumb of me. But I'm glad that I got a chance to to look at her career. Yeah, I had a. I had a similar experience there because my like primary association of Sue Grafton's work is when I was a kid, like in the late eighties, early nineties, I remember going to the pool in our neighborhood at, in the summer and all the moms <laughs> yeah. around the pool, like you could see, it was kind of like when I was on vacation a few years ago, everybody around the pool at the mm. resort was reading the girl with the dragon tattoo. Like <laughs> when I was a kid, it was all, all summer, every summer, it was the moms around the pool reading A is for B is for like, however far they would have gotten up to by the like 1990. Um, and I think I just it kind of in the same way that I didn't read Nora Roberts until mm. I was an adult because I had just written off like these are the things that my mom that all the moms <laughs> like this is a mom book. You know, these are the things that all the moms read when I was young. And so like, ugh, why would I want to do mm-hmm. that? And when I did finally let myself read Nora Roberts it was a like, oh, I get it moment. Yeah. Um, and I think I will at least be giving some Sue Grafton a shot. Um, I had the same experience reading her obituary being like, wow, what an interesting, interesting woman. Yeah. Lady. And it really goes to emphasize also how much attention we don't pay to commercial fiction writers who drive the industry. Like every mom around the pool was reading her, but nobody thought she was important enough to be like doing profiles of back then. Um, or for, uh, for people to grow up knowing about her in this way, we had to be surprised by the information in her obituary. Um, a really interesting lady too. And can I also, the other thing that occurred to me, I mean, cause I'm an idiot. It took me this long. What genius branding that alphabet titling mm-hmm. 
uh, template was because it, it answers a couple of questions that all readers have about authors' works. A, it's, is this part of a series? Right. And where how does the series there? fall? And how many are there? Right? Because like, if, if you see on the, the used book rack, D is for, I, I don't know, Dingo, probably not. I'm just guessing that's not it. You know, okay, well, there's probably three before those, and I can probably expect there to be a whole bunch after. You're not wondering, mm-hmm. like, what, do I have to read this before this one? No, you know exactly where. And you also know that it's Sue Grafton. You know you can expect it. And another one comes out, it's like, oh, that's Sue Grafton. Even if you don't remember the author's name, you remember the... the um, the, the title convention, which I thought was fascinating mm-hmm. too, but it's interesting you say we don't we don't give thought to commercial writers, we don't pay attention to them. You know, this is one thing that in doing this site and you know the company, um, getting exposed to how books are made from you know the writing process, the drafting, editing, agencing, sales, marketing, advertising, literary coverage, and you know retail, the whole thing getting a bigger understanding is like how important all those things are into what books we talk about and what books go into our eyeballs. It's something, you know, I spent a lot of years in grad school studying literature and the amount of time we spent on the infrastructure of books, Mm. what in hindsight feels so ridiculous and naive to me that it's a real shame, you know, and and one of the reasons I, I enjoy doing annotated and one of the reasons I wanted to do it and I, one of the things that reasons both of us are interested in, it, it gives, it lets us look at the business and art of books next to each other. And like, what does it really take? Mm-hmm. What really happened? Who were these people? What, what struggles and decisions and successes and failures go into, you know, walking into a bookstore and just seeing the names and the titles on the shelves? Because there's a certain sort of, where it feels like they're a little bit like cans of corn and that they just sort of appeared there. But the, the amount of <laughs> right. effort that went into them getting there and the decisions and all are fascinating. There's so many stories to be told. And yeah. I guess I got a little bit of that with reading Sue Grafton's um, obituary. Like, oh, there's a really interesting story about her here. Like, there's more to this person than uh, the same as that, the, the, those foil covers with um, uh, C is for, uh, uh, you know, whatever. Cat burglar. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I'd read that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking about that as well, that there's this tension that we've talked about on the show and that I think just exists within publishing within a lot of industries that commercialize art, where there's almost an inverse relationship between popularity yeah. and perceived quality. And you can get one or the other. Um, you know, the more popular you, you become, the better, the higher on the bestseller list you go, the less seriously you are taken as an artist. And often the folks that are the most respected as literary artists are the ones who are not selling a ton of books, but have like made a literary achievement um, of some kind. And I don't know how how you square the circle of like perhaps the folks who have figured out how to write books that appeal to millions and millions of people deserve some respect as well Mm -hmm. for their success, that there's just not one way to become successful in literature. It's not just about high art. Like pop music does not have this problem. Um, You know, certainly there are like the litfic equivalent of music snobs who would snub their noses at Taylor Swift, but they would also well, she sold millions and millions of records. Like you don't have to like the music, but there's some respect there for having figured out the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to belatedly like apologize to Sue Grafton. Yeah, definitely. For being like, I well, think that's I would the, be too. Yeah. <laughs> all the moms were reading you and that should have been a signal to me. 
It's like uh, all the it's like all well, it's like uh, all the moms are reading her. Wait a minute, all the moms are reading right. like that's you, the, right. there's a flip like a bitch at a flip there, right? I, I agree. Imagine I right, imagine this way. imagine this discussion in a graduate level course about writing about like yeah. well, maybe you want to pay attention to the kinds of books that all the moms are reading. Mhm. And, and I, I shouldn't be, I mean, I, I don't want to say off. all academia does this, my particular experience speaking from the eye, so on and so forth, but sure. at, at a certain level, it's not about people studying Sue Graft. And I think that can change. I mean, you see people studying different things over time. And I think there's a way in which the studying and respect part can go hand in hand um, over time and things can change. It's not immutable, mm-hmm. but I certainly didn't get it um, well, and, I mean, and I find think... it all fascinating. I think that that is at the heart of the questions that we get when we talk about Dan Brown. Of, yeah, like, I think it's right. Really yeah. like Dan Brown. And the heart of that question is really, how can you respect these books that aren't high art? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, they're fun and we love them. And he knows what he's doing. Like Dan Brown says this in interviews. And I think Sue Grafton would have said as well, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to write the book version of an Oscar movie. I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to be high art. I'm not going to ever win the Nobel Prize in mm. literature, but my books still have value and look at what they're doing. Well, if you've never tried Le Guin or Grafton, you can. And you know what would make that super easy? You know, I'm thinking maybe mm. what if there was some sort of like really low cost, maybe even free way to get books on your phone or your iPad? Oh, I'm, I see where yeah. you're going here. What if it was Libby? Who is sponsoring our show today? The one tap oh, that's so reading app from Overdrive. Meet Libby. Libby's not here. Libby's not a person. This is uh, anthropomorphization. Sometimes they do this in advertising. Meet Libby, the one tap reading app from Overdrive, by downloading Libby to your smartphone. You can access thousands of ebooks and audiobooks from your library for free anytime, anywhere. Titles in all genres, maybe thrillers. Maybe sci-fi, maybe fantasies. From bestsellers, A's for alibis, to classics, nonfiction, comics, and much more. Libby works on Apple and Android devices and is compatible with Kindle. I don't know if we mentioned that before. All you need is a library card, but you can sample any book in the library collection without one. In select locations, Libby will even get your library card for you instantly if you don't have a library hey, card, hey. but you want That's one. That's awesome. Go to Meet Libby app. Oh, sorry. Let me, let me start this again. Meet dot libbyapp.com to get started. So you don't have your library card. You don't know where to go. Maybe you don't even know where your library is. Maybe you're far from the library. Go try the app. Maybe you can sign up for your library card right there. Check your check and see. But you can you can plug yourself in. That they're also sponsored, I should mention, our Read Harder Challenge this year. Um basically a list of challenges. If you want to give yourself a little, you know, get out of your comfort zone a little bit with some of these challenges. You go to bookriot.com slash read harder. You have a list of all the, the challenge prompts for the year. Also, we do recommendations um, for each of the challenges. A whole bunch of content about the challenge also exists there. Bookriot.com slash read harder. Also present Libby is our presenting sponsor. You know, it's a great fit. I'm so thrilled it worked out that they would sponsor because it's perfect mm-hmm. for Libby in discovering and trying new things. You can try things that maybe you, you don't want to shell out 25 bucks for the hardcover for, but you want to try makes it super easy. If you're a library user already, also get you in the library. I hand sell this thing to people in my real life. I should I should give them like a code that they can give overdrive for us. That, yes. You're we, a one man Libby install. Street team. I am really doing it. So that's meet Libby. You can just search for it in the mm-hmm. Apple App Store, the Android one too. But if you want to go check it out on your you know browser, meet.libbyapp.com. Thank you so much for them sponsoring the show. 
You know, while we were talking about Sue Grafton mm-hmm. and adaptation corner, this is a good fit. Um, and mostly just a congratulations to um, Celeste Ng, of whom yes. we are big fans. Her 2014 debut novel, Everything I Never Told You, uh, has been optioned for film. Uh, it's going to be produced by Michael DeLuca, who produced The Social Network, Captain Phillips, and Moneyball, which we both love, uh, and will be uh, written, the screenplay will be written by Julia Cox, who wrote The Last Tycoon for Amazon. Mm. So that's all we know. Uh, we don't know if it will be distributed, where that might appear, um, but interesting and exciting to see that move to this phase where um, someone is going to be working on an adaptation and such a perfect film for that. There's mm. the book moves around between different members of a family. You could imagine how that film or uh, even a TV series would work really well to move around between those characters and just really thrilling news um, for Celeste. So uh, big congratulations to her. Can I do another non on the agenda adaptation thing? I don't know if you saw. Oh yeah. But um, Emily Gordon, who co-wrote the big sick is going mm-hmm. to be adapting The Nest. For, Ooh, I don't know if you exciting. saw that. Um, I did not see Cynthia that. I really enjoyed that novel. Dupree, Sweeney? How do you say that? Cynthia Dupree. Dupree, yeah. Dupree. Cynthia Dupree. Sweeney's um, big-selling literary fiction novel from two years ago? Three years ago? Mm, yeah, I think it was two summers ago. Does that count as a... Well, it's a fan... I like... I, I, you liked that, didn't you? The Nest? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a. It's kind of a getting the band yeah, back I was together. Say, and it's, yeah, I Actually, it scratches two itches of mine because I love novels that I call rich people problems. <laughs> and um, so The Nest is basically a family back together solving a family crisis that also happens to be a crisis of having lots of money and then losing lots of money. Um, I really, lo- I thought it was a lot of fun, um, well-written, and also will lend itself very well to like a big ensemble cast. The only twist I could do to The Nest that might make it even further into your wheelhouse would be if the it was a <laughs> rich um, patriarch dying and their family got back together who also happened to lead a cult. That's the one where you just really, <laughs> I did all, it hit a bunch of, bunch of the levers uh, there. You know, um, Winter Institute is this week. It's Speaking the of American cults. Bookseller. Uh, yeah, right. The American Bookseller Association's like annual conference mm-hmm. where they go for continuing education and, and training. And a friend who's attending was sending me uh, their notes from the rep picks uh, sessions, which is where the sales reps from the publishers each get like 20 minutes to talk about six books that they love. And one of them um, is a book called We Are Gathered that the pitch for it was like big interfaith wedding with family <laughs> shenanigans. And I was like, just pick me up a galley of that and put it in the <laughs> <laughs> for Rebecca Shinsky colon a novel <laughs> right there did you ever go to Winter Institute the, uh, oh, I didn't you know they don't let press go you, but like, you have were a book to be seller. a bookseller you were a bookseller you didn't go that's true You're no um, but never for an indie and so it's are you for, sure you didn't go you were a bookseller what if I just like insisted <laughs> that you had gone I just keep saying are you sure you didn't go I, are you sure I'm pretty sure you went no I didn't go uh, and I think they only allow up to two um, uh, people from the same indie bookstore to go. So like I didn't ever work for an indie bookstore, but I, I it's limited who can go. And they also don't allow press. I think like yeah. shelf awareness sends a couple of people who are allowed to like do fawning good coverage mm. of um, what's happening at Winter Institute. And so no, I've That's never experienced those, that. I've been I to would some like of to the, go. I would like to go to it yeah. just because it is so 
It is. I mean, it's here. Are the books coming out. Wham, 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 wham. I mean, like, yeah. That's the point of it. Which yeah, is fascinating. I've been to um, a couple of the regional trade shows. Ah. I went to SEBA several times, which is the Southern Independent Booksellers Association, and they do versions of that. Like there were cocktail hours and speed dating kinds of things with the um, sales reps who would each have like three of the upcoming books that they loved, and you would go around to their table and they would pitch you um, on those. But another of the blurbs that got sent to me was um, summed up as lusty Bavarian widows. <laughs> I was like, say no. More Bavarian, it's weird. Yeah. I'm fine, I'm great. Go ahead, in a cult, in a cult, in a cult, in a cult, in a cult with multiple narrators. Um, and they're uh, all solving so anyway, a family problem. Winter yeah. Institute, yeah. If, if you, any of you, I know we have booksellers out there. If any of you've been, it does it is it fun? It looks fun, it seems like a fun one. I don't know why it sounds like fun, yeah. yeah it sounds like fun. We're, Lots of social, we're so jaded about BEA fun. now that like. <laughs> something right. else like that looks like fun that looks like a fun there's so industry much, book like, event there's so much camaraderie between yeah. indie booksellers that i think the the tone of it the feeling of being there has to feel better than like being in the javits center seems like a hard having job the soul sucked out being of a body. sales rep for a publisher because you have to sell books to booksellers it's tricky mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems tricky suddenly yeah. now that i say it like that <laughs> So what do you do? I Where sell books. Where should we even uh, go on this I'm agenda? I don't know how we got down that. <laughs> Speaking of, well, let's let's we got to check in with the big A because this is we talked mm. about this coming, um, mm-hmm. and it, I guess the first one is open in Seattle, yeah. Amazon Go, which is Amazon's first cashierless store, where. I frankly don't super understand how this works on a detail level, other than. Yeah. They buy, you can bypass checkout lines thanks to hundreds of tiny cameras and a computer algorithm that keeps track of every item shoppers grab. So you have to have an Amazon account and the Amazon Go app, and then it tracks. Basically, you put stuff into your cart, and then you get a receipt after you're done. So it kind of just watches mm-hmm. what you buy and then charges you yep. for it. Mm-hmm. And the uh, writer of this story on for Salon said that they even tried, she tried to trick it. She basically tried to shoplift with Amazon's permission by wrapping a shopping bag around a package of soda while it was still on the shelf and then tucking it under her arm and walking out and Amazon charged her for it. <laughs> um. It's weird. Like so, it's it's very controlled, right? Because you have to have the app and an account, and it says yeah. they have en- they have guards at the entrance, like There's, the subway stations that are tills that you have to like go through. So it's like a controlled environment. It's it, this isn't Costco yeah, on a Saturday and, afternoon situation. Right. Yeah. And it's a convenience store. You can go get a four pack of soda. Um, The kinds of items that are on the shelf are relatively limited to what you would pick up at a convenience store. Like this is not a full blown grocery store even. And they call it a like sort of a haute convenience store um, with an emphasis on convenience. But um, I have not heard the the, like deep details of an experience here, but a friend of the show, Khalif, was tweeting that he went into this, Mm. he went into the store and that it was an interesting experience. Um, Khalif is black and he was saying that this was like the first time that he didn't have to worry about being followed around a store because he was black. I didn't even think about that. Right. Because the the store doesn't have cashiers, but he wondered if the guards were 
Like he, you know, his race was still present in the yeah. experience because he wondered if the guards were going to be looking at him, suspecting him of shoplifting anyway. Um, but I had, I hadn't considered that either. Right. Of course, because grounded in a different experience mm-hmm. of, um, we watch everybody, no we, we have there. cameras on everybody at all times, you know, it's like, right. Right. When there are no people mm-hmm. there to discriminate between you, what kind of freedom that might lead to feeling. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was interesting uh, to see that tweet come across. So hi, Khalif. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, this is one of those things that people don't like. I mean, I think this on the on the ba- on the scales of excitement, more people are like, "Ah, this is creepy," than are like, "Oh yay, no cashiers." Um, yeah. That's my sense of the internet's feeling about it. I I don't care myself. Like, is it that much better than when I go to the grocery store and I do my self checkout? Like, is it really that much better? That's gotta yeah, keep wondering. I- I don't understand the creep factor. I certainly understand the cons- like the uh, slippery slope concern yeah. here about you know, if all stores did this, then what would happen to the millions of cashier jobs that exist in mm-hmm. our economy? Um, so I get that concern, but I don't. I don't know. I just don't find it that creepy. Like I like doing things with apps. I am a. This is kind of embarrassing, but I'm a recent convert to the convenience of the Panera app because when I'm running errands and I'm all of a sudden hungry, I can like order a salad and it's sitting on a shelf mm-hmm. waiting for me, and I don't have to wait in a line and I don't have to talk to a human. I just like pick up my bag and go. Mm-hmm. Um, if I if you need like diapers and a six pack oh, of beer, hey, yeah, why do you need to talk to someone? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm not I even sure to talking to someone. Yeah. I think it's the waiting in line to check out, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of, of that it. Is too. yeah, is is part of it. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know like about what's on offer. You know, the reason we're talking about because Amazon is Amazon, and it does you know ninety percent of ebook sales, and by some accounts almost 50%, maybe more of print book sales. So the question is, is there going to be an Amazon bookstore with no cashiers? Like, is this a, you know, a test Mm -hmm. for something like that? I think it would be very hard with books because, well, maybe it'd be easy. I guess I don't know what the image recognition technology that the cameras are using. Are they just looking for barcodes? Are they looking for something else? Are the 3D models of all the items in the system so that they can differentiate between them? I think it becomes more difficult when you have a bunch of books that are, especially hardcovers or paperbacks, all look right. kind of the same dimensions. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can do image recognition on the covers. I think it's really interesting to think about that particular universe. And Amazon is trying to solve the question of where does it not dominate retail? And it dominates online. It does not dominate when you want a banana and a yogurt in the afternoon or a soda or like, can they do everything? And for them to scale, they won the way to scale. This is how they would do it, right? Where they they use their machine learning. They use their huge data uh, about what people buy. And they have a lot of money to invest to sort of reinvent the store. Like, I guess... I was, the way I was thinking was like, imagine you know our local Fred Meyer here, which which I, I like, go in and there was no cashiers and I just picked stuff up and I just pushed it out the door. Is it changing mm-hmm. my experience that much? I feel like it doesn't, but maybe maybe it does. I'm just like, it's not like it's not like Uber or Lyft where you press the thing on your right. phone and a car shows up. And that that's that's a radically different thing. This yeah. seems like only a marginal improvement to me. I have to, I mean, I, have I to think say. that I, I don't know. I I think it can be a great improvement depending on how busy your typical grocery store yeah, that's true. might be. Yeah. Like I don't know. I like grocery shopping, but I hate the 
standing in line part and that like I always seem to end up in line behind someone who's writing a check in the express lane and like nothing makes my makes like steam come out of my ears faster than that like I'm a pretty calm person Mm -hmm. but it's like I don't think there's any amount of meditation that is ever going to get me to like not want to flip out on the person writing the check in the express lane so for those like if I could have a if I could just know that my 20 minutes of grocery shopping is not going to end with five minutes of stressful being in line and like unloading the cart just to reload the cart I would be that would I would love it I would drive out of my way for a grocery store that just let me push my cart out the door with all the things that I needed super interesting to hear yeah um speaking of checks I don't I read this recently I guess I knew this but I I'm reminded of it that um, <laughs> like the U.S. is like the last country to use checks in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a thing you do. And when you think about it, it's like super – it's a super weird like vestige of an older it time. <laughs> but it is But but uh, you – so really I'm saying you could move literally anywhere else and not have to use checks if that's, <laughs> if that's the hang up. Well, when Riot New Media Group is ready to support the Queenstown office yeah, right. of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of me. Might be me a while. The New Zealand market's hard to break into, I've heard, in, in book advertising. Uh, yeah. Let's do another you sponsor. you want to hear about our next sponsor? Yeah, We're getting towards the end yeah. here. Our last sponsor this week is It Should Have Been You by Lynn Slaughter. This is uh, sponsored and published by Page Street Publishing. Uh, it's about Clara. Uh, who she's been living in her sister's shadow, but that has never been more dangerous. Five months ago, Clara Siebert's twin sister was murdered. Struggling under the weight of newfound and unwanted attention, the only thing that makes Clara feel normal is ghostwriting an advice column for her school's newspaper Mm. until she starts receiving threatening emails in her staff inbox Mm. that say things like, it should have been you. But soon, oh, that's creepy. Uh, this is for readers who like psychological mind games like Pretty Little Liars and the thrill of unraveling a mystery like One of Us is Lying. Uh, you will definitely like it should have been you if that's up your alley. Um, from the first sentences through all the twists and turns up to the surprising ending, the book will hold you in its grasp and not let go. There are blurbs from just a ton of writers. PW said fans of the genre will find much to enjoy in this thriller book list said it was a tidily constructed murder mystery um, Christina Hogue who wrote Girl on the Brink said it was compulsively readable just so much praise for this book sounds creepy and compelling so that is It Should Have Been You by Lynn Slaughter Book Heist yes um, if there could be a book like a book height cult fam, book heist oh, cult family like gets back together rich people problems novel that's what I want <laughs> So basically last week, a rare first edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone worth an estimated 400, uh, excuse me, 40,000 pounds. So I guess that's like 70,000 US dollars um, was stolen during a burglary of a Norfolk bookshop over in the UK. Um, That's the lead of the story. And it looks like it's maybe the most valuable of the books stolen. But it was a whole bunch of rare books from its rare bookshop. There was um, mm-hmm. signed first edition of uh, The Color of Magic by Terry Pratchett. I guess it's just Color of Magic. A si- signed first editions by Winnie the Pooh, uh, The Hobbit, mm. Great Gatsby, um, paperback copy of Brief History of Time with a thumbprint signature by Stephen Hawking, which is something I didn't even know oh. I wanted. Yeah, uh, that let's sounds cool. see. Yeah, anyway, so got stolen out of a stop in the middle of the night, which I guess it's just an interesting story that people boost 
that's a how much this edition is interesting too. They say one of the the first edition of the first Harry Potter book in England only five hundred copies in the print run, three hundred that went to libraries. That's why I mean we know where it is in culture, but it has this extra constraint of they didn't print that many. And the the cover has it as Joanne Rowling, not J.K. as the author, which is also fascinating. So anyway, that there's that out there. That I would think this would be a hard thing to fence. I don't know much about the criminal underbelly of I mean, anything, really, but I don't know. I mean, it seems hard to get full market or even close to market well, on this. And yeah, I was just thinking that as well. Like, police are appealing to people to help trace the books, but it seems to me that because these are so limited, like, if you tried to list them anywhere online, it would be easy to track them down. So yeah. maybe the heist was done by you know, p- people who are already connected, you know, to book collectors. I, I, I would think can, you'd have to, right? Like, yeah, maybe maybe they're sort of maybe the they're booksellers. Mm. But they got hired to do it. Maybe they are booksellers. I think we're just writing. We're just writing heists. our. We're just we're just writing our story about what happened here. <laughs> it's a little headcanon. That's fine. Yeah. The 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 um, statement by the police said these books are very rare, in some cases unique, and not the sort of thing you see every day. So basically, what they're saying is, you can't just sell it like I don't know, like a, a big uh, TV. Right, that you stole. It's worth a few mm-hmm. thousand dollars. That's kind of interchangeable with every other TV. These are singular works that can be traced, identified, otherwise um, pinned yeah. to this I particular mean, crime. A thumbprint signature of Stephen Hawking's brief history of time. Come on. Yeah, I, are the, that must have been a thing that he did at some point, or still does. Like, is this a is that a one off, or was like you know like there's that video of turtles all the way down. John Green mm-hmm. signed like a hundred thousand copies. Like are there a whole bunch of these is just right. One like thing? maybe like, what is that? he couldn't hold a pen when he was touring. Yeah, for this, of course. And so he was yeah. doing the like do thumbprints thing. It's really fascinating. Really fascinating I need to know stuff. more about that. That's the most that that's the that's the most interesting tidbit. I mean, besides that, the whole thing happened. But Stephen Hawking's thumbprint signature mm-hmm. on a book is fascinating to me. Yeah, more interesting uh, than than Harry Potter, much as I love him. Yeah. Um, Anything else about that let's story? Let's see. No, nothing else about that. I don't think there's much meat on the bones of this next one, but just to mention that sure. Google Play Books is getting into the audiobook game. Mm. Um, they're offering competitive pricing with a pay-as-you-go model. So this is not a subscription like Audible. You pay for each audiobook as you want to go um, or as you want to listen to them. I haven't been into this yet to look at what they consider co- the competitive pricing to be because as we've talked about many times, like the list prices for audiobooks on Audible are often God. bananas. Um, so it'll be interesting to me to see what Google Play lists them as. Um, you can, of course, you know, buy audiobooks through your Google Play bookstore and you'll be able to listen to it on your device as well as if you have a Google Home thing or like a Chromecast uh, speaker setup, you can stream and adapt all of your stuff that way. So I'm interested for our folks who have Android devices, if you're going to be checking out audiobooks through Google Play or do you already have an audiobook source that you're into. I wonder really how much difference this will make for Google. Like, are they going to get folks who are like, oh, you know, I've been waiting to have a way to listen to audiobooks Hmm. um, or some converts or what's that going to look like? Um, It feels really late in the game to me to be interested, to be entering the audiobook space. Um, So I'm I'm shocked it wasn't there before. The news to me was they didn't already have it. I mean, I guess that's how I thought about it. I was like, is this a headline? And I thought it was going to be about like new subscription service. And it was like, oh, they're just going to be there now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It is really tricky. Um, I, I guess even Google is so compelled by the force of audio, digital audio. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being 
facetious about yeah. this. I'm serious. Like uh, digital audiobooks are a huge growth industry, and they have a platform. I don't know why they didn't do before. The books are out there, a licensing deal. I, I have no idea. Um, but they're out there. Uh, but this gives me a chance to jump on my bandwagon. Or no, hobby horse. I'm jumping on something taller than me to scream about something. So whatever that is, I'm, I'm getting on it. I believe so I they call that a soapbox. It's not that I don't like that. Um, anyway, you're right, but I want something fiercer, <laughs> like a bandwagon, because that nothing says fierce like an old wagon. Nothing says ferocious like. Um, a- <laughs> I was doing book right deals of the day and Natchez Burning by Greg Isles. I don't know if you know how to say that mm-hmm. name, but yeah. it's a big, it's big Isles. selling book and a trilogy. And so it was two ninety nine on Kindle for today. Uh, probably by the time you hear this, you can't get it, but whatever. And I saw what um, Amazon was charging for the audiobook fifty four bucks. Oh my god! I couldn't believe it. I know with Audible you can get it down to twelve bucks or whatever, but like again, I was just struck because really? it's not a huge book. Fifty four bucks. I don't get it, man. Uh, so nope. I want competition in the price, the audiobook. I don't know if yes. is this agency pricing. I don't even know if it's governed by that. I have no idea. Agency pricing, which is the thing I never understand, because it's always the opposite of what I think it is. Is that is that. Uh, retailers have no agency in pricing books the way they want to, basically. That's how I understand it. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the prices are set by publishers. For ebooks, especially one reason we've seen prices of ebooks rise over the last couple of years is that you know publishers held out and got agency pricing after they were convicted of colluding to keep prices high. Anyway, it's a <laughs> complete mess. But I'm guessing that audiobooks must be the, the prices must be the, I don't what I don't understand is how can if it's agency pricing how is it $54 list and then you can pay 12 bucks with a 3 credit per month subscription with Audible I, do you understand that I don't understand it it's I, if someone knows please explain that to us I find that perpetually confusing I don't get it I I, I really don't um so that's anger Are we and making is this like a is this a sea change in the Book Riot podcast that now we're going to have audiobook pricing rants, or are you just? I think I did this variety? once already. I think I've had this rant already. It's all it's all part of <laughs> the have, same yeah, conspiracy. It's, true. it's all part of the same <laughs> rotten core Denmark. I'm just saying words with no grammatical <laughs> relationship to each other. That's how upset I am. I'm not even using propositional phrases or linking verbs. All right, let me tell you something happy then. All right, and let's then we'll get wrap here, up yeah. this show. We got Heroes of the Week this week mm-hmm. at Truesdell Education Campus, yes. which is in uh, Washington, D.C. Ten fifth grade boys, with the help of an administrator, started a book club at the school, which is in the northwest uh, Northwest Washington, and it has become the most popular club on campus. It's a book club for boys of color, particularly, um, and it's growing so fast that staff members can't keep up with the students' voracious literary habits. Um, so one of the the members, an 11 year old named uh, Devon Wesley said, the books that we read here, we can relate to. And it's finally allowed him to encounter black characters who look like him. Uh, the club only dates back to December when a fifth grader complained one morning that his lackluster results on a citywide English exam did not reflect his true reading abilities. And so the principal placed a book that she just happened to have lying around in his hand. And it was Bad Boy, which is Walter mm. Dean Meyer's memoir. And told him to start reading. And then uh, the assistant principal, Michael Redmond, saw this all happen and called Devon in um, and they just said he was a popular student, a smart student. He needed an extra push um, and they didn't want the reading assignment to feel like punishment. So they asked him to invite some other classmates um, to read the book 
together. And now they have in like four or five weeks, a book club so popular that the school can't keep up with it. Um, they're wearing sweatshirts that say hashtag brilliant brown boy, which is a line from uh, from the bad boy book by Walter Dean Myers. And talking, this is a great, it's kind of a long piece in the Washington Post, but talking about really what it has meant to them to read books that feel like they are about their lives and about people who are like them. So um, great heartwarming power of books and literature, and certainly a testament to the importance of representation uh, and of we need diverse books. So awesome to them. Good job, Truesdale Education Campus. We salute you. Wonderful job. Uh, you can read, we'll link to this and all the mm-hmm. other stories we talked about in the show notes today's episode. You can go to bookriot.com slash listen to find it there. Shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. We'd like to hear about Winter Institute. We'd like to hear about Stephen Hawking's thumbprint signatures. We'd like to hear Little Birdies talk to us about agency pricing and audiobooks and subscriptions to shell games to make you pay cheaper but more expensive than they should be somehow audiobooks and yet feel good and bad about it at the same time. <laughs> uh, let's see what else we have. Thanks to our sponsors this week. Um, we had Libby. You just heard from Rebecca. And then we had, was it uh, Before I Let before Go? I let before go. I Let Go. Mm-hmm. Our sponsors this week. Back next week, more stuff about books and <laughs> random grievances. Bye. <laughs> have a good one.